Good morning. Let's be in class for prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for you and for your love and for the way you run your universe. And as we watch what's happening in the world about us today, we are so thankful that you run your kingdom completely different than the way these governments on earth run. We ask that your spirit will be with us as we uh, study today. We ask that your will be done on this earth and that events uh, unfold that will open the way for this message about you, the final message of mercy to go to the world, that the world can be enlightened and you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number six in the quarterly education, and the title is More Lessons from the Master Teacher. And the memory text is Mark 10, 52, which reads, Then Jesus said to them, Go your way. Your faith made you well. Said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. What does this mean? Your faith has made you well. Didn't God... Jesus make him well? But Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Does wellness come from faith? Did this man have real physiological blindness of his actual eyeballs? Or did he have what we in psychiatry call a conversion disorder, where he had psychological blindness, and he just needed to have a change in belief, and then he could see, and so he had belief in Christ, and that's why he could see. What do we think? I think he had real physiologic blindness. I don't think he had. I think he had physical blindness from his eyes, not what we call a conversion disorder. So then what does it mean his faith made him well? Doesn't the healing power come from God? Then what's the role of his faith? That's what caused him to ask for help. That's what caused him to ask for help? So faith, would that be his... Trust. Position. Okay, his, which is his trust, his consent, his opening up of himself, making a bond, a connection to God that gives permission for God to act and work in his life. Is that what we mean by faith then? Okay. If that's what we mean then, and I think that's very reasonable, what do we do with people who pray for healing of various kinds and don't receive it? Does that mean they just didn't have enough faith? It's certainly possible that they didn't. We have a story of 450 prophets of Baal praying for a miracle of fire very, very enthusiastically, and they didn't get their miracle because their, their, maybe they had faith, but their faith was misplaced. Uh, it's certainly possible a, curse, a person could pray for healing with a selfish heart, without a trusting heart. People can do the act of prayer without real faith, can't they? So it's certainly possible a person may not get healing because they're praying to a false god or they are praying with a selfish heart. It's certainly possible, but go ahead. They may be praying for a, an allowance to continue living in sin. In okay. Case, if God granted their prayer, he would be sanctioning. So, yeah, so I, I like that. So, but, but the point I'm making is, can you tell a person's faith level based on whether they're healed or not? Now, it could be those things, but you just can't tell, because we can't read hearts, right? We don't know. Was Paul a man of faith? Paul, the apostle, was he a man of faith? Did he get healing from whatever his physical malady was that, he, that is recorded in Scripture that he asked for multiple times? Did he get healing from it? Is that because he didn't have faith? No. So there's a good example, right, of somebody with faith who didn't get healing. 
There's always another element to the healing or the, or the miracle of any kind, whether it's the fire from karma. There's always another element to miracles besides your faith. And that's God's will. God's foreknowledge, God's overwhelming knowledge of all the variables that you have no knowledge of and his working out of his, his events for the best good of all. That element always has to be included. And so consider this historic quote, and what do you think of it, coming out of the Second Testimonies, uh, page 148. <clears throat> we have united in earnest prayer around the sickbed of men, women, and children, and have felt that they were given back to us from the dead in answer to our earnest prayers. In these prayers, we thought we must be positive, and if we exercised faith, what we must ask for, uh, that we must ask for nothing less than life. Must be positive. Must ask for God to restore life. We dare not say if it will glorify God. We dare not say that. Fearing it would admit a semblance of doubt. We have anxiously watched those who have been given back, as it were, from the dead. We have seen some of these, especially youth, raised to health, and they have forgotten God, become dissolute in life, causing sorrow and anguish to parents and friends, and have become ashamed to those they feared to pray. Those who fear to pray. They live not to honor and glorify God, but to curse Him and their lo- and their lives with their lives of vice. We no longer mark out a way, nor seek to bring the Lord, to our wishes. If the life of the sick can glorify him, we pray that they may live. Nevertheless, not as we will, but as he wills. Our faith can be just as firm and more reliable by committing the desire to the all-wise God and without feverish anxiety, in perfect confidence, trusting all to him. We have the promise. We know that he hears us if we ask according to his will. Our petition must not take the form of a command, but intercession for him to do the things we desire of him. When the church are united, they will have strength and power, but when part of them are united to the world, and many are given to covetousness, which God abhors, he can do but little for them. Pause right there. When the church is united to the world. How do you think that looks? One way could just be weirdliness of a kind of vulgar sense when the church members and the people of the church uh, have the same levels of vulgarity in their speech or abuse with drugs or alcohol or porn. or That's one way to be worldly. Yes, could, could certainly include that, but there's another way to be worldly, and that's to use the methods of the world in governance, imperialism, to align yourself to seek righteousness in the community through human governments, to try to get laws or justices or judges in place, to pass laws, to make sure that people are coerced by the power of the state in order to live according to your morals. That's worldliness too, isn't it? Okay. Well, what I've discovered, and this is, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that quote. What do you think of that quote about prayer? 
Yes, we pray for healing. But we trust God with the outcome. What I've discovered in the Bible is when it comes to miracles, that the vast majority of the time when miracles are performed in Scripture, they are done through the strong in faith for the weak in faith. I'm going to say that again. Most of the time when miracles happen in Scripture, they're done through the strong in faith for the benefit of the weak in faith. Faith. Gideon and his fleece. Did he need that miracle of the fleece because he had great confident faith or his faith needed encouraging and strengthening? The miracle of no rain for three and a half years and then the fire from heaven at Mount Carmel was though, were those miracles for Elijah. He needed them so he could have strong faith. Or it was Elijah's faith already strong and those miracles were for all the people who were confused by Baal worship to help their faith. The miracle of the ten plagues of Egypt and walking through the Red Sea on dry ground were these miracles for Moses to strengthen his faith. Or were these miracles for both the people of Israel and the mixed multitude, the Egyptians who came out with them, to help them form and build an infant faith in God? The miracles that Jesus did, all of them, you know so many recorded, I won't go through them, but all the miracles Jesus did, were any of them done for him? Did he need those miracles to strengthen his faith? No, they were for all the other people. He was trying to build their faith in him and the Lord and the Father. The the miracles worked through the apostles. Were they for the apostles? Now, you might consider, well, Peter walking out of prison, that was one he benefited from when the prison doors opened. Was that miracle done primarily for Peter? Or was it done so Peter could go speak to the people at the temple? It was done for the people at the temple, not primarily for Peter. It wasn't for Peter so he could go escape and move to China and be free from all the persecution. He yes, sometimes the miracles benefited the person, but it really wasn't for his faith. His faith was already strong. He didn't need it. Am I making a case here with evidence Again and again, miracles happen through the strong in faith for the benefit of those whose faith needs strengthening. So the blind man, his faith was strengthened with this miracle, and perhaps also for the community around who saw the blind man healed, that miracle's for them as well. It helped their faith. As we grow in our faith relationship with God and we have ever-building mature faith, we become perfect. Does that word scare you? Perfect. Bible perfection. Does it scare you? Because Bible perfection is Job. He is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. Those are God's words recorded in the book of Job about Job. Does that mean he is sinless? Did not mean sinless. Bible perfection is about a mature faith that trusts God and will not be shaken out of their trust regardless if the heavens fall. That's Bible perfection. And Job had all kinds of tragedies and travesties and pain and suffering, loss of his fortune, loss of his family, loss of his health. But Job didn't understand it, but he said, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's Bible perfection. That's all it is. 
Does it matter in whom we place our faith? Or as long as we have sincere faith, we are true and honest with our faith. As long as we're sincere, then it doesn't matter. It's our sincerity that matters. Or is it what we have faith in that matters? This is another historic quote out of uh, Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 56. See what you think of this one. Faith in a lie will not have a sanctifying influence upon the life or character. Pause there. Is that a legal thing? If they don't have faith in the right legal payment, or if they had faith in the wrong God, therefore God is legally required to injure their character, or he's legally restricted from healing their character. There's a rule in place. Is that what that's describing? Is this legal? Or is it simply how reality works? It's a design law. Our faith actually has impact and changes us. Who we trust changes us. Keep going with the quote. No error is truth or can be made truth by repetition. Oh my goodness. How much do you hear practice today if they repeat it enough? If the media says it over enough, then people start, and they do. I see it all the time. Just say it enough, say it enough, say it enough. Pretty soon people believe it. Okay? No error is truth or can be made truth by repetition or by faith in it. Sincerity will never save a soul from the consequences of believing in error. I sincerely believed if I jumped off the building, I would fly. See, sincerity doesn't change how reality works. And this is one of the problems with certain philosophies being foisted on the people today. They foist philosophy, words, rhetoric, hyperbole, but contradict how reality works. And people buy into it and they get injured and they get worse. That quote reminds me of uh, one of my mentors in therapy. He's, he's famous for saying that ineffective treatment rendered with a greater frequency or greater enthusiasm remains ineffective. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Let's continue with the quote. Without sincerity, there is no true religion, but sincerity in a false religion will never save a man. I may be perfectly sincere in following the wrong road, but that will not make it the right road or bring me to the place I wish to, to reach. The Lord does not want us to have a blind credulity and call that faith that sanctifies. What is a blind credulity? What is it? It's talking about the so-called commonly preached, taught, and esteemed blind faith. Faith without evidence. That's what it's talking about. Just believe. Believe because the Lord, God said it, I believe it. That settles it. My Bible said it, I believe it. That settles it. This is blind faith. This is blind credulity. This is believing claims. This is believing proclamations. See, when you have no evidence, you don't want people looking at evidence. Satan is the father of Lies. So Satan has words, he has rhetoric, he has proclamations, he has claims, he has hyperbole. He does not have evidence. It doesn't support him. This is Satan's ground as the father of lies. God is the source of all truth, and he also has the words of truth. But in addition to the words of truth, God has reality. He has history. He has evidence of outcomes. He has cause and effect. He, all reality actually supports the truth of God so that you can examine the words, the truth, the word of truth, compare it to evidence, history, outcomes, 
and understand the difference. The mature are those who have developed by practice the ability to discern truth from error. So be very leery, 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 leery of persons, groups, or parties that want you to believe without evidence on the weight of claims or powerful rhetoric or practice methods that shut down investigation, shouting down opposing voices, canceling people who present ideas that are different than their own, censoring people, canceling accounts. Why do they do it? When you have no evidence or the evidence exposes your fraud, then you want to shut it down. But if you're an innocent party, think about somebody who's made an allegation against you, you're completely innocent. You don't want to shut down the investigation. You want to bring more light to there. Look closer, folks. You'll see the truth of it. I was, this is all fraudulent. We see this happening in society today with great effect. Great effect, these methods being applied. Continue with the quote. The truth is the principle that sanctifies. Therefore, it becomes, becomes us to know what is truth. Pause. The truth is the principle that sanctifies. You've heard of justification? You've heard of sanctification? Justification by faith, sanctification by faith. But what's this element of truth here? What is that? Truth is the principle that sanctifies? What's that mean? How does truth sanctify? Satan is the father of lies. You will know the truth and the truth. What's truth set us free from? You're, when, you, when you believe something, you neurobiologically change your own physiological brain structure and ultimately your character changes based on the things you choose to believe. God is the source of all truth, but he gives you the freedom to choose what you believe. And based on what you believe, you experience neural rewiring, um, dendritic um, electron cluster changes in configuration, which memories are formed in. You are, you are changed by these things. The truth sets us free. So first paragraph uh, in Sabbath's lesson. Here we are, first paragraph. Who among us, we just did the memory verse. Who, who, among us has, who, has, who among us has never been ashamed of himself or herself? Who among us hasn't done things that pain us to think about and that we would recoil in horror at the thought of others knowing? Most likely we've all been there, haven't we? From where does both guilt and shame originate? From where do they originate? Pardon? Heart and mind. Heart and mind. So Adam and Eve in Eden before sin had guilt and shame? Yes. Okay, did they have a heart and mind? Yes. Did they have guilt and shame? Yes. <laughs> before, before they sinned, they had guilt and shame? No. So does it originate in the heart and mind? Or does it originate in sin? It originates in sin, which happens in the heart and mind. Yeah, sin, when we take ourselves out of harmony with God's design for life, the automatic result is both guilt and shame. Automatic. You can't avoid it. 
This is known as legitimate or appropriate guilt and shame. However, the feeling of guilt and shame can also come from believing lies. Believing you've done something wrong when you actually haven't done something wrong. Taking responsibility for something that is not your responsibility. I see this all the time in my practice. A, uh, a parent has a child uh, killed in a car wreck. And the parent feels guilty. It's my fault. I should not have let them go with their friend's mother in their car. It's my fault. So they take responsibility for the outcome. There's no wrong in that decision. But they feel guilty because they believe a lie that they were responsible for how things turned out. So you can have guilt and shame from actually committing sin. Or you can have guilt and shame for believing a lie that you did something wrong when you actually didn't. But regardless of whether your guilt and shame is appropriate because you're doing wrong in some way or inappropriate because you're believing a lie in some way, regardless, once you experience guilt and shame, what do you want? Application of truth. Now, what do you want? If you're experiencing guilt and shame, what do you want? Resolution. You want it to go away. You want the guilt and shame to go away. That's what you want. You don't, who wants to live in guilt and shame? Nobody. Nobody wants it's an, it's 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 uncomfortable. It's awful. Nobody wants to live there. We want it to go away. We want to stop the feelings of guilt and shame. Appropriate guilt and shame and inappropriate guilt and shame are resolved differently. Appropriate guilt and shame are resolved by repentance and restoration, experiencing through God's grace healing of our hearts and minds and characters, and becoming a new creation in Christ. We're the old is gone, the new has come. We're reborn. That's how we get rid of appropriate guilt and shame. Inappropriate guilt and shame is resolved by the application of truth and the eliminating of the lie. So, either way, appropriate or inappropriate guilt and shame, if unresolved, if unresolved, causes what? If you have guilt and shame, either because of believing a lie, or you've done something wrong, you haven't had resolution with God, you haven't gotten rid of it, what does it cause? It causes fear. Fear of rejection. Fear of reprisal, fear of punishment, fear of not being good enough, fear of embarrassment, fear of loss of position or relationship. And what does fear lead us to do? To protect self. If we don't go to Jesus, if it doesn't lead us to Christ and repentance, then what happens is we begin to protect self. Our actions are about self-protection, self-justification. And so here are the ways we do it. Blame game. It wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. It wasn't me. It was the serpent in the tree. It's not my fault. I was abused as a child. I grew up in a poor neighborhood. Didn't have a father in my home. My parents were alcoholics or drug addicts. No one ever loved me. I have every right to lie, cheat, steal, rob, rape, shoplift, assault. It's not my fault. I had a bad childhood. But the truth is, regardless of our histories... Regardless of our wounds, our mistreatment, our circumstances, as we grow up, we have the responsibility for what we do with our lives. Do we recognize we had a lot of wounds inflicted upon us that were not our fault? And those wounds hurt us and make us fearful, make us ashamed or or guilty because we have so many distortions in our head. But we realize there's something's wrong. And as we mature, do we seek healing? Do we get professional help if we need it? Do we go to to God and surrender to him, ask for his grace? Do we accept Jesus? Do we begin to practice his methods and learn his principles? Or do we reject God? 
Do we embrace selfishness? Do we see the world as an unfair place and everyone is in some way against us? Do we instead practice the methods of the world to advance ourselves? Regardless of our histories, once we have some age of accountability, don't we have responsibility for the decisions we make? We either heal or we don't. Well, that's one, blame game. Next one, denial, justification, rationalization. I did what I needed to. It is right to watch out for self, to protect self. And if that means stealing, and, 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 and it's okay. It's the right thing to do. Big corporations steal all the time. They cheat on their taxes and, and, uh, and uh, that, that they're supposed to pay. And they, and they move jobs out of the country. And that's why my wages are so low and I can't afford things. Uh, and uh, I have a right to take what I need. I, I, have a, I, I don't have a problem. You're just being judgmental and critical. And, and you're being a racist and a sexist and a xenophobe. You're, you're supposed to love others. What's wrong with you, you hypocrites, telling me that I, I shouldn't do these things? Trying to arrest me and put me in jail for stealing? What's wrong with you people? You're a racist. The blame game. Denial. Justification. Rationalization. Or, here's another one. Because we feel guilt and shame. And we're not going to Christ for, for a new heart and right spirit. We're trying to cope and get rid of these feelings on our own. So another one. Self-medication. Through alcohol, drugs, or shopping, or serial sexual relationships, Seeking to numb the guilt and shame, which typically actually only results in more guilt and shame, more denial, more distortion, and we become ever more deluded with how reality works. Or in a religious world, false penal legal theologies that hide us or protect us from God. God can't see my sin because Jesus' righteousness covers me. My record book gets erased and God can't judge me. I don't have to worry about my sins in the hereafter. Nobody will know what I've done because if they knew, they wouldn't love me. I'm afraid people would find out. But no worries, God hides it all from everybody. We get amnesia and we get to heaven. Nobody's going to know. Then this leads to false security that fails to actually fix the heart problems of people. They remain fearful and guilty and shameful. Trusting in the legal payment is Jesus hiding hiding them. This is the this is a false Christianity. This is Phariseeism. The religious rules that they enact, and they become uh, the ones who seek out to destroy in the church and the community those who don't keep their rules or believe the way they believe. Historical examples of this type of application to find righteousness in punishing and getting rid of people who don't believe your way. I'll be righteous. I'll get forgiven of my sins if I go to the Crusades and kill Muslims. Or if I have indulgences and pay enough money to the church or build a cathedral. Or hunt down and abuse Jews, blacks, homosexuals. Burn a cross when I do it. using the power of the state to force one's own religious agenda on others. This is what happens. Guilt and shame, feeling I've got to feel righteous about myself. I've got to do this. If I don't, it's offsetting their own shame and guilt. That's why the people do this kind of stuff. So how do we get past guilt and shame? The only true way past it is God's way. To heal our hearts and minds, which requires the application of... Truth and love. love. Application of truth and love. That's right. And so if, if legitimate guilt and shame because of sin in our lives, then we have to apply truth 
to ourselves that diagnoses our condition. So we admit that we have a problem. I admit that I was born in sin, conceived in iniquity, and I have sin in my life, and I can't fix it. The truth, truth of what the problem is, not a legal problem, but an actual condition of being out of harmony with God, infected with fear and selfishness. We have to have the truth. We also have to have the truth about God, that he is trustworthy. He's not our enemy. He's not the source of pain that we need to be protected from. He is the one who can heal and fix it. We have to have that truth. Truth about Jesus, what he achieved as our remedy to heal and restore us. And this truth, all this truth, wins us to trust. And in trust, we open our heart to God. And it says in Romans 5, 5, he pours his love into our hearts. And perfect love casts out all. And we stop living fear-driven, self-protective mode. And we start living a God, loving God and loving others mode. Guilt and shame goes away. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That's legitimate. Illegitimate guilt and shame is resolved by the application of the truth, which dispels the lies, and thus we're freed from the false guilt and shame. Thoughts, questions about any of that? The lesson points us to Psalm 32, and I want to contrast Psalm 32 from the NIV and the remedy. Uh, What happens if you go to the Bible with an imposed law lens? Believing God's law works like human law. He makes up rules, and he must enforce and keep those rules. And you believe sin is a legal problem that we have to have legal adjustment for versus whether you understand God's law is design law, and sin is a condition of being that needs healing. This is uh, Psalm 32 of the NIV. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Pause right there. If your worldview is imposed law, then this seems to be penal legal. Sins are deeds. Forgiveness is legal pardon. Covering sins is having Jesus' perfect life cover over my record of bad deeds, hiding the record from both uh, me and, and other people and God. But if one has design law view, this actually means something complete. If forgiveness is understood in its fuller sense of restoration and reconciliation. And having our sin covered means covering the consequences through healing and restoration. So I will tell you, if you have a design law view, reading the NIV is not a problem. You can see it and you understand what it means instantly. But if you don't, reading the NIV or the other versions reinforces a false penal legal view. That's where the remedy can be helpful. I'm not, I could do this with every verse. I won't. I'll just read the rest of them. But what I just did, you should be cutting your mind doing real time. So verse 2. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. That could sound very penal. He's a judge. He's got his record. He's going to go down the record. He's going to count the deeds. I said I wasn't going to do it. I'm doing it. Okay. Uh, Verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with the songs of deliverance. I will instruct I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will uh, not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. So that's the NIV. 
Now, see what it sounds like in the remedy. See what you think. Happy are those whose wicked minds are restored to perfect purity, whose selfishness is eradicated. Happy is the person whose infected heart the Lord transforms to perfection, in whose mind there is no deceit. When I held on to my guilt and shame, refusing to talk to God, I stressed myself and my body decayed because every day I screamed, No! Denying the truth. But day and night, your healing hand pressed firmly upon me. My resistance evaporated like water in the summer heat. Then I admitted my sin sickness to you and did not hide my character deformity. I said, I will confess my selfishness to the Lord. And you healed me and freed me from my guilt. Therefore, let all the faithful ask you for this same healing while healing is still possible. Then when the guilt, shame, and regrets regrets of life come flooding in, the faithful will not drown in them. You are my safe harbor. You protect me from the storms of life and turn my life into a song of deliverance. The Lord says, I will teach you my methods and how to live in harmony with my designs. I will guide you and watch over you. Don't be like the unthinking horse or mule that do not reason or understand and must be forced by bit and bridle to follow the simplest instructions. Many are the sufferings of those who defy your designs. But those who trust the Lord are healed by his never-failing love. Celebrate God's goodness and be happy, you spiritually healthy. Sing for joy, all you with hearts like God's. Do, Do you see the difference there? Now, all that's in the NIV if you have a design law when you read it. If you don't have a design law when you read it, these other translations done by good-hearted people, but they have a premise that God's law works like human law, when they do the translation, they interpret words that have more of a legal aspect to them rather than a restorative aspect to them. Sunday's lesson. First paragraph says, Typical stories of the fall depict, oh, this is about the, this is about the, uh, the, the tree in the garden. Eating of the, it was forbidden because it stood for something, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, it stood for the temptation to push God aside and declare, I can measure my own life. I, I want to talk about this again. We've talked about it a couple times in the last few months, but I just, I, I want to emphasize this because I think it's so important to really understand what is the purpose of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What is its purpose? Was the tree there? And it goes right back to your understanding of reality. Imposed rules. It was a test. See if they'd keep the rule. Break it, demerit. You're in death row. You're now minimum penalty, eternal death. I must enforce it. But I love you too much. I'll send my son, kill him in your place. Or how reality works. Because of design law. How life actually operates. Do you see that this tree was there for Adam Eve's good? We consider the reason for the tree. Satan tricked them to believe a lie about God through tricking them to believe that God's law functions like human law. Right there in Eden, tree of knowledge of good and evil, first introduction of the imposed law lie to humans. Satan makes the claim, the claim, you will not surely die. And he's talking to them, claiming he's eaten the fruit. So what's implied by this declaration? Did this, did Satan say it is not possible for God to execute you? God does not have power sufficient enough to kill you. Should you eat the fruit? Is that what Satan told them? No, he said, you will not surely die. 
So it's not about God being unable to execute a criminal. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is nothing inherently wrong with eating the fruit. You will not die from eating the fruit. So if you're not going to die from eating the fruit, and God said you will surely die, if both of those are true, eating the fruit won't result in your death, but God said you will die, what's the only way you're going to die? God will have to kill you. That's how you die. You won't die from eating the fruit. And if God's still telling the truth, and this is the lie. Not saying God won't kill you. Not saying he can't kill you. I'm saying there's nothing harmful or inherently destructive in eating the fruit. That's what's there. Impose law immediately. And this is essentially what all Christianity teaches today. All Christianity, including the Adventist church, teaches this lie. Penal legal lie. God must kill the unrepentant in order to be just. But how reality functions through design law, we see a purpose in putting the tree in the knowledge of good and evil. Something that God wanted Adam and Eve to achieve. Something for their benefit, their advancement, their development, their growth. Do you see meaning in the name of the tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the tree where they would know reality. It's a reality-knowing tree. Do you understand? This is where they would come to decide for themselves what they would know. What does it mean to know something or someone? Life eternal, John 17, 3. This is life eternal. They might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Does that mean that we know about God. Is that what that means? Or is that knowing something more than knowing about? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, something more than knowing about. Think of the difference between knowing about someone like President Trump, President Obama, President Bush, and actually knowing them. How many of you know them? See, no hands went up. But if I said, how many know about them? You probably all know something about them. Knowing about someone is not the same as knowing them. This is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is not the tree of theoretical knowledge or cognitive knowledge or academic knowledge. God and the angels had already educated Adam and Eve on the facts of the rebellion in heaven, on what evil was, on what death. They educated them on on the cognitive facts. But there's a difference between knowing the science of swimming and knowing how to swim. Those are not the same. So God is telling Adam, it is at this tree you will have knowledge, so choose well. Choose not to partake of the fruit and you will know good. You will know love. You will know trust. You will know loyalty. You will know devotion. You will know maturity. You will know integrity, joy, peace, and godliness. All of this will solidify in your character. So please, my beautiful children, choose to know by experience good. But if you choose to partake of the fruit, then you will know evil. You will know fear, you will know selfishness, you'll know insecurity, you'll know guilt, you'll know shame, you'll know distrust, you'll know pain, you'll know suffering and eventual death. Please, my beautiful children, don't choose to know evil. 
God already knew evil, not in his character, but in his heart, as his heavenly family was already fractured and he'd already suffered the heartache of the loss of his angelic friends. He knew that pain. He did not want humankind to know that pain. But the only way they could know good was for them to decide that they were going to choose good. It's the only way for them to know it. Couldn't be chosen for them. So this tree of knowledge of good and evil, so beautiful, so magnanimous, so awesome of God, and so simple for them, really. Bottom pink section says, whatever Christian education entails, why must it entail God entail even emphasize the fact that our natural state is to hide from God and then point us to Jesus as the solution. It's so true that our natural state of sin is to hide from God. The sad reality is this natural state has infected Christianity and infected the doctrines that we teach. And so we take beautiful doctrines that are designed. You understand the entire Old Testament sanctuary symbolic system was about taking sinners alienated and a long way off from God out in the camp and bringing them into at one mint. At one minute, unity, bringing them back into the presence of God. Okay, in other words, exposing them fully to God's presence. That's the whole the whole symbolic teaching is about that, and that's why at the cross, the veil that separated God's presence from the church. The church is the holy place where we have the bread, the the word that we partake of, and the lamp, which is a light into my path, and uh, so forth. The word of God, both represented. This is the church, the holy place. The veil. Christ's death was was rent open. We have a a living way into God's presence. It's all about getting us back into God's presence, not hiding us. That's what it's about. But sad reality is the lies of Satan infect Christianity and we take these beautiful things and we teach them as, uh, as ways to hide us from God. So the robe of righteousness is perverted to teach that when the Father looks at us, he can't see us because we're covered by this robe of Jesus if we accept him by faith. So the Father can't see all of our wickedness. The candy-coated rotten apple theory. I'm rotten to my core, but Jesus sees, um, God sees a beautiful candy coating. It's not true. The true meaning of the beautiful metaphor of covered by the robe of righteousness is described in the book Christ, Christ Object Lessons, page 311. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Does that sound like covering over something or healing it and restoring it? That's the true beautiful metaphor. We actually become. So Second Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The big lie is we don't become righteous, we stay unrighteous. I've had professors of theology sit down around a table with me and they tell me we do not become righteous, we get declared righteous in the courts of heaven in a legal accounting while we remain unrighteous. That's the lie. That's Satan's view. It keeps people corrupt. Next beautiful metaphor, Jesus, our mediator, stands between us and the Father and pleads our case to the Father. Again, hiding us. Rather than the truth that Jesus is from the Father to mediate to us, to bring us the love of the Father, the knowledge of the Father, the truth of the Father, to win us back into harmony with the Father. Remember, Satan's the father of lies. 
Jesus said, no one's seen the Father except the Son. And if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he came to win us back. The Father did not need truth presented to the Father to win the Father over. We needed truth presented to us to win us over. And these metaphors of, of, uh, of the Scripture. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the, the flesh is a metaphor for the words of truth, truth which dispels lies and wins us to trust. That's also bread and wine. The bread is the truth, and the, and the blood and the wine is the perfect righteousness or life of Christ that we receive once we're one to truth. The father didn't need bread and, 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 and uh, flesh to eat. He had the truth. He didn't need a new righteous life. He was already perfect and righteous. All of this mediation is done for our benefit. The angels needed the mediation of truth. The loyal angels needed mediation of truth, but they didn't need, so they needed the bread, they needed the flesh. They did not need the wine or the blood. This is uh, another historic quote, Review and Herald, January 11, 1881. Consider consider it and see what you think. While we rejoice that there are worlds which have never fallen, these worlds are under praise and honor and glory to Jesus Christ for the plan of redemption to save the fallen sons of Adam, as well as to confirm themselves in their position and character of purity. The arm that raised the human family from the ruin which Satan had brought upon the race through his temptations is the arm which has preserve the inhabitants of other worlds from sin. Every world throughout immensity engages the care and support of the Father and the Son, and this care is constantly exercised for fallen humanity. Christ is mediating in behalf of man, and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. Okay? Mediation is not this perverse, legal, penal thing of dying and sacrificing, going to heaven and offering your blood and your flesh and your, and your legal payment to Father to propitiate and assuage. This is all perverse. It's paganism. Mediation is always about mediating the truth of God to the universe. The angels in heaven who had doubts because of Satan's lies, they are solidified in their loyalty because of the revelations of Jesus but we needed more than what the angels needed. We needed, in addition to be one to truth, we needed that righteous life imparted to us. The blood. Covered by the blood or, uh, or paid by the blood, these metaphors also have been perverted in some legal payment pagan means rather than the true interpretation that the life is in the blood and to receive the blood of Christ means we receive a new life, a new heart and right spirit. And he writes his law in our hearts and minds. Monday's lesson. Any questions about that? Yes. Is there not a better word that we could use other than paid? Jesus paid it off. Well, it, it, again, it depends on how we understand it. If your child was dying of renal failure and you uh, donated a kidney to save them, could we say you paid a high price to save your child? And could we say, and maybe you not only paid by giving a kidney, you also paid the medical bills. You had a, enough money, you paid the medical bills. Could we say you paid the entire price for their salvation? We could say that. Does that mean it was penal legal? No, but that's the way it's most often taken. That's because of the law lens. So when you hear the language, you just have to back up and go, how do you understand God's law works? If God's law works like our law is paying fines. 
If it's the hospital setting, it's paying by providing what's necessary to fix or heal the problem. Yep, and there is a price to be paid there. It did cost, and there was a price. just wasn't penal legal. It cost for him to come and become incarnate. In fact, this uh, little, if you don't have it or read the blog on it, the infinite sacrifice of Christ, the infinite price that he paid. It talks about the infinite sacrifice, that Christ lived as an infinite being in, in, in or out of infinity. He had infinite connection to the infinite universe of his creation and was able to process in past, present, and future all alike. It was, it, it was amazing. He has isolated himself for all eternity in a physical human body. This was an infinite sacrifice. We can't fully appreciate it. That's a high price he paid. It's not a legal price. It was the only means that he could achieve the outcome that he wanted, which was fixing the problem of sin in humanity. Yeah, so I, I, I get what you're saying. Run into it all the time. But be prepared just to be able to shoot it down instantly by, by showing that the price is a reality-based provision of what's necessary. It has nothing to do with penal legal stuff. Alrighty, so Monday's lesson... It's about Jacob and Esau and how um, after Jacob cheats Esau and lies to his dad, he runs off and he experiences God there at uh, Mount Moriah. So lesson is an example of how God does not abandon us when we sin, but continues to pursue us in order to save us. And what can we learn from the story of, about how God in Christ is seeking to reach us despite our sins? What can we learn about that? Does it depend on what we understand the sin problem to be? How God seeks to reach us depends on what the problem is, doesn't it? If the diagnosis is wrong, the solution is usually wrong. And this is why it's so important to actually understand what the sin problem is, which means we have to determine what God's law is and how it functions, which is the the key to it all, the three angels' messages about calling people back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that in them is. We aren't born guilty, folks. We're born terminal, dead in trespass and sin, born with a condition we didn't choose that, if not remedied, results in death. That's how we're born into this world, because of Adam and Eve. But because of Jesus Christ, we have a free remedy provided that we can freely partake of that gives us a new heart and a right spirit. You could say it this way, gives us a new life. That Jesus shares his immortal life with us. And we, and humanity ends up being uplifted to a higher state because of Jesus than Adam was in his creation. You all understand that? Humanity in the end is lifted higher than Adam was at his creation because of Jesus. We sit in thrones, joint heirs with Christ. It's quite profound. Wednesday's lesson, I want to, I want to jump to Wednesday. Maybe I should jump to Thursday. No, jump to Wednesday or Thursday. Which one do I want to jump to? I think I'll go to Thursday's lesson. The first two paragraphs in Thursday's lesson, and we have many more pages for Wednesday and Thursday if we, if we need to back up. Uh, first two paragraphs says, Jesus and his followers had turned toward Jerusalem. As Herod had been concerned about John the Baptist, uh, the authorities, including Herod, were now concerned about Jesus. His followers in, included the poor, other vulnerable folk, hoping desperately for change. Jesus wanted, above all things, to bring hope to the world. Bring hope to the world. 
Does Jesus bring hope to the world? Did he bring hope to the world? Did Jesus want to bring hope that he would overthrow the Romans and establish an earthly government that would punish the Romans for what they'd done to the Jews? He wouldn't bring them that hope. Some wanted that hope. Some were hoping for that. Yeah. Did Jesus want to bring hope that might and power over others would win the day? Did he want to bring them that hope? Did Jesus want to bring the hope in earthly governments and earthly methods? But weren't there slaves in Jesus' day? Weren't there human rights violations? Weren't there problems with racism and sexism? Weren't women disadvantaged and mistreated? Did Jesus provide hope to all of these poor, suffering, abused, exploited people of human injustice or not? Did he provide them hope or not? Absolutely. It's not how could he? Did they burn the Roman flags? Did they tear down the Roman standards? Did he lead riots in cities? How could he possibly bring hope to these people? I'm just pointing out the corruption in our society today. It's so corrupt. And it's one of Satan's big deceptions to take a real, real, real... Now, did I in any way suggest that, that the slavery and the racism and the sexism and the, and the poverty and, and all this w- was good? No, these are real wrongs. Real wrongs. I'm going to say it again. Real wrongs. Okay? But, but one of Satan's big traps for Christianity is to get Christians in society today to identify real injustices and then seek to remedy those injustices by implementing human laws and coercions. It's a merger of church and state, no matter what you want to call it. It's what it is. This is not how Jesus brings hope. I will tell you another one is the green movement. The green movement is you have hope if you take control and save the planet. Understand the... Read Peter. Peter tells you what happens to this earth. All of the elements are going to melt in the fervent heat. This earth is going to be destroyed as we know it. That stands in exact opposite of the green movement. The green movement, see, Christians should have known this all along. There is no saving the planet. There's being good stewards. And as a good steward, you want the planet to have clean air, clean water, um, clean environment from toxins, so that you, the human made in God's image, can thrive. And that you, as a good steward, develop good character by being a good steward. It's about your development. That's the purpose. The earth was made for the health of humans. The green movement has got it upside down and backwards. The earth is the mother. We are the latest evolution. And we've become a parasite. We're destroying the earth. And their view is that the only way for us to sustain ourselves is by ultimately taking actions that call the human population. The earth is more valuable than people. They view it very similar to this analogy. And this is why they're constantly gearing up fear. If we don't do something, we will have title flight. We will have all this in 10, 15, 20 years. Well, we're going to have all this problem because they're constantly gearing up fear. The Christians should go, the earth's coming to an end. We can only develop good character and practice godly principles as good stewards, but we're not saving this planet as it is. In fact, we don't want to. How many of you want to save cancer and uh, and all, even just in nature? How many of you want a new heaven and new earth where lions ravage and tear down lambs in front of you? We don't want an earth like that. That's an infection. We don't want it. 
And so the green movement is constantly gearing up this idea that, the, that we can save the planet by taking all these actions, but the consequence of those actions is culling the human population. We're an infection on the planet. We're the problem. We're like a virus. So Earth is more valuable than the people. Don't buy it, folks. Don't buy it. It's, it's, it's designed to, to encourage fear and then, and then self as the savior. It's a big, big trap. And this is what, the, uh, the, uh, what, what human politics do to things. We don't want to be political. We want to be principle-based, teaching the true hope, and the true hope is not in saving ourselves with, green, with the green movement. The true hope is teaching people the truth about God as revealed in Jesus Christ, so we come back to practice his principles of loving our neighbor as ourself, and enlightening the world with the final message of mercy, which is the truth about God's character of love, so that he will come. I think one of the traps, the delaying tactics of the devil that delays the second coming of Christ is getting Christians caught up in political movements. In other words, real injustices that we try to solve through human social mechanisms and political movements. Therefore, we are no longer operating in God's principles. We're operating in earth's principles, and we have perverted the entire energy of the church. And so back to that earlier quote, the church has joined with the world, and God can't pour his spirit out upon us. I think it's a delaying tactic. The three angels' messages are not going to the world through passing the right policies. Hope, hope you didn't think I was being political. I was being anti-political. So I was being anti-political. Well, I have several more, several more days worth of stuff in the notes. We're already over, so we're going to go ahead and close the prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so truly thankful for your kingdom of truth, love, and freedom. For your graciousness, for your infinite sacrifice in Jesus to Bring us the truth and provide us the remedy. We ask that your spirit be poured out to heal our hearts and minds and empower us with the ability and wisdom and discernment to be able to differentiate the evidence of truth from the hyperbole and rhetoric of lies that are all around us and then make us effective wielders of your sword of truth that we can go forward and wield the, the sword of truth to cut through the lies and set hearts and minds free that we can see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.